We thank you for giving us your word, even sometimes when it's uh, more difficult to understand than others. Um, but we thank you that you've given us your spirit to help understand it. So we ask that we open up, uh, that you help us open up our hearts to your word and also that you open up your word to our hearts. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the fall of Babylon... That's the topic that we're dealing with today in Revelation 17 and 18. We're coming rapidly to the end of John's vision of God's day of judgment for the world. We've skipped over some chapters to get here because unfortunately there's only a certain number of weeks that we can preach in a year. We hope that in your life groups and your personal study time, you'll be able to spend more time in the chapters that we've had to leap over to get here. But today we'll be occupying uh, in chapters 17 and 18 uh, with the fall of what is called here Babylon the Great. These chapters are particularly significant because these, more than any or at least as much as other chapters in this book, are a source of diverse opinions, to put it nicely. When we talk about people having different, sometimes conflicting ideas about what the book of Revelation says, this is one of those big crossroads where people diverge. Uh, let's start by looking at uh, the beginning of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered in blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hands, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. In chapter 16, which we have flown over, but I hope you'll get a chance to read through yourselves, seven angels pour out seven bowls of God's wrath on the world. And a lot of that stuff folks can diverge on a little. They'll see plagues of sores, plagues of blood, and folks can generally say maybe these images, well, they're very similar to the punishments that God levels on Egypt in the book of Exodus, for example. Maybe they'll be punished in, a same, in the same way. Maybe this is just displaying how God's judgment will be similar in character to the judgment he leveled on the Egyptians in Exodus. Maybe we don't agree, maybe that one doesn't matter. Moral of the story, God is the judge of the world, let's hold hands and sing. In chapter 17, with the return of the beast from chapter 13, and the introduction of this Babylon the Great, this is where people start planting flags and slap fighting. The reason is that, well, we're not quite sure who Babylon is, and we'll get into that as we move on. The reader is given these two characters, the beast and the great prostitute. The beast we remember here in verse three, it is the same beast that is the one that emerged from the sea back in chapter 13. Seven heads, 10 horns, many blasphemous names. And sitting on this beast is a new character in this apocalyptic story, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth. Quite a name. Now first, the precise nature of this beast, which causes so much destruction and misery, is difficult 
to determine. This is because John has not completely equipped us to know for sure. Back in chapter 13, we were introduced to this beast's number name, the 666 figure. But the meaning of that number seems to have been for John and those close to him to completely understand. It doesn't remain for us in clarity thousands of years later. But now, John records this angel's explanation of the meaning of the beast's many heads and horns. So get ready for everything to be made very clear. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was, now is not, is the eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Oh good, I'm glad we cleared that up. The seven heads are seven hills. They are also seven kings. The beast itself is the eighth king, like the first seven. Ten horns are ten other kings. So we're looking for 18 kings on seven hills. If this revelation about the beast has not been very revealing to you, do not worry, you're in good company. Anyone who says they know for certain what these things mean is probably one of two things, either slightly too proud of themselves or wiser than every student of the Bible for the last 2,000 years. People have been trying to identify the beast and these kings for a very long time. Some people count up the number of emperors of Rome. Others perform obscure calculations with the number of nations in Europe or the European Union or the communist nations or American presidents. For years, Christians have been saying, there's the beast, got him. And then being very embarrassed when the world does not end shortly after. Now studying through this, I thought it must have been much more fun to preach these passages in the 80s. You could get up in front of a congregation in 1988 and say, we have a many-headed red beast with lots of leaders, hates Christian. This is Russia, right? This is communism. That's what this is? Communism. All right, we're done. Let's go home. But then in 1989, the Berlin Wall starts coming down. The whole communist thing starts falling apart, and the Christians are left there going, I was so sure. We may not be meant to know the numbers of horns and heads, 10 and 7, well, 7 and 10 respectively. Wait, 10 and 7 respectively, that's right. Um, in biblical imagery, have strong implications of completeness or fullness. They may not be used literally here at all. They may be a legacy or a dynasty of seven or eight actual rulers and ten smaller vassal rulers. Or it may be a statement about the totality of the world power arrayed against the saints by the forces of the devil. But we can know this beast's purpose. It's stated for us in verse 14. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The beast and all his kings are the instrument the devil turns against the saints of God. How this will play out, which kings are which, and from where they will come, we do not need to know in detail. 
We have been given instructions regarding what to do in this period back in chapter 13. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So what about this Babylon, the mother of prostitutes? Now there's an obvious contrast between this woman and the heavenly woman we see in chapter 12. We have a profane mother contrasted with a divine one. One is the mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth. The other is the mother of the redeeming savior and also of the saints of the earth. One is wicked, the other pure. One is doomed to destruction, the other secured to salvation. The end of chapter 17 tells us all it is willing to tell us from verse 15 about this woman. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over the beast their ro- to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So Babylon then is a city that rules over the kings of the earth until they turn on her. This rivers or these rivers that converge here represent the coming and going of nations that interact with, become rich off, submit to, and generally fall into the power, into the grip of this Babylon until it is destroyed by the beast and those horns. So what, does, so what city does God mean when he says Babylon? That's the important question. Most of us will remember Babylon from the story of the exile, as told in the Bible, where the Jews are taken into captivity far away from home. While they're there, they're obviously upset about that arrangement. They cling to the promise that God will rescue and avenge them. They cling to the prophecies that God had given to assure them. One of those in Isaiah 13, 19 and 20. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the pride of the glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. So through the prophet Isaiah, God had promised a judgment of destruction on Babylon already. The picture painted in this prophecy is of a, one of sudden desolation, of destruction in a moment. It's the same picture we're given in Revelation 18, sudden destruction by plagues and famine, and most pointedly, by fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. The one problem with this is that by the time John was writing this prophecy, Babylon was already out of the picture. Babble off, Babel gone. Babylon did not vanish in fire and plague and righteous skyborne fury. You see, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians and then by the Greeks, not annihilated with righteous judgment. It was taken over. Its people were forcibly transmigrated, moved around their empires, much like the Babylonians had done to the Jews. Shuffled around to new places like they had done, and over hundreds of years, the city lost its prestige, lost its power, its central role in ancient Near Eastern politics, and eventually the once mighty Babylon was simply deserted and abandoned. 
abandoned about 180 years before Jesus was born. This may be revenge enough for the Jews, but this slowly developing gradual abandonment is not the picture that we're given in that ancient prophecy. And if all we had was the book of Isaiah, and if we were modern Jews, we might have a problem on our hands. But Revelation gives us new insight. Many years after Babylon is made powerless, after she is empty and abandoned, John records a prophecy against Babylon, the great, this powerful, blasphemous city of great wealth and luxury. So John's Babylon must mean something more than just Babylon, must it? And therefore, Isaiah's prophecy can mean more than just the abandoned city of Babylon being smashed to pieces. So two of the primary candidates for this mysterious Babylon city have often been suggested to be Rome and Jerusalem, both biblically significant cities, both experienced terrible destructions. While the fire that came to them didn't hurtle down from the sky with brimstone and a Sodom and Gomorrah sign of God's judgment, you could arguably say that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 with the right kind of fiery destruction. In fact, the Romans so viciously crushed Jerusalem that after they had sacked the city and demolished the temple, they made a special insult, the likes of which I've never heard of before or since. They changed the region's name. The province used to be called Judea, obviously because of the kingdom of Judah that was there. After Rome was done with the place, they renamed it Palestine, naming it after the Israelites' historic enemies, the Philistines naming it after the people that the Jews hated the most. That's quite the power move. On the other hand, it's extremely generous to say that Jerusalem ever ruled over all the kings of the earth. So can that really be the city we're talking about? And Jerusalem at the time John was writing was not dripping in gold and jewels like the picture we get of Babylon the Great. Remember that when the Jews come back from the exile, they patched up everything as best they could manage, but in Ezra chapter 3, the old Jews literally cry at how lame the rebuilt temple is compared to the old one. Jerusalem was the equivalent of a lovely vintage car with glad wrap over the busted out windows. Rome, by contrast, extremely rich, extremely powerful, could arguably be said to control the kings of the world at one time. On the other hand, Rome was sacked five or six times in history, burned, smashed, and rebuilt. And the Rome that is kicking around today certainly isn't running the world. Rome, or rather Italy, is clinging to Germany's shins and trying to borrow enough money so it doesn't implode. So that's not a winning option either. Now our senior pastor, beloved by all, has the interesting conviction that Babylon means Babylon. a restored version of the ancient city of Babylon, which will, in the future, have this kind of wealth and dominion. I think that that's more likely than Babylon being Jerusalem or Rome, but I still have reservations about this idea. And I greatly endanger myself by saying so. Mark my words, I will be out of a job in two months. It's true that Saddam Hussein was pouring a lot of money into excavating old Babylon, which is in present-day Iraq. They put a pin in that idea when the American-led invasion drastically changed priorities in the region. But one, two, three hundred years from now, could happen. I take Babylon not to be a literal city of Babylon, however. I think Babylon is used 
emblematically here. It's representative of what Babylon means in the greater context of the Bible. I think the kind of city that Babylon was in the history of God's people is what we are supposed to take away from this description of Babylon. Just as the woman in the heavens in chapter 12 represented the people of God, the daughter of Zion, the true followers of our Lord, here in this passage, this blasphemous woman represents the world allied against God. In defiance of our senior pastor, beloved by all, I think that Babylon is not a literal city, but the great powers of the world that scoff at the message of our Savior and defy the authority of the creator of the world. And Revelation describes that day of the Lord, that final judgment, when all things are set right, when all the wicked are punished, the saints lifted up to God. God has victory over the devil. The people of God have victory over the people of the beast. Zion has victory over Babylon. But until that day comes, that victory is not fully resolved. It is not fully completed. It's assured but not delivered. And the Lord did not choose Babylon as the city of sin in this vision for no reason. He might have chosen Rome if he meant to mean just a powerful city. Rome was the powerful city in John's time. Rome was the nation that, uh, that sent John to the Isle of Patmos, which is why he was in exile himself. Reading today, we could have had an image of Rome as the great evil city and then guessed which city it might have meant today. Any of, the, of today's powerful cities, Washington, Brussels, or Beijing. But the image we are given is Babylon because we are the people of God. And until the day that the Lord comes, we are living in exile. As surely as the Jews were taken into captivity under the empire of Babylon, each of us is born into a world that rejects our Savior. When God says in chapter 18, verse 4, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. We must understand that we are the people he's talking to. And until the day comes when he calls us out of this world, we are living in Babylon. So I think this passage can make clear what was unclear and troubling for the Jews long before, that the people of God are not in exile in a foreign city, but in a foreign world. And they have not come home yet. And the message for us is the same as it has always been, endure and have faith. We are told that the kings of the earth and the people of the nations are drawn in and made unclean by their association with this Babylon. And there are two great sins that she is described as drawing them into which we, as dwellers in this Babylon, ought to prepare ourselves against. And I think that, that is the real instructive value of these verses, regardless of whether or not you believe it's Rome or Washington or New Babylon or a generally anti-Christian flow of world power that we will have to face in the last days. The sins that are here are greed, called here luxury, and idolatry, which is called here adultery. Now, chapter 18, verse 11 says this concerning the greed of Babylon. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles made of every kind of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. 
This is a grotesque indulgence we're given a picture of here in the char character of Babylon, wallowing in material comfort and excess. Now, this is not a difficult wisdom to grasp. We know the things of this world are fading. We know we are not to cling to earthly wealth. The picture we have of Babylon is one of disgusting wealth, all silk and jewels and gold. But very few of us will have temptations, well, yeah, very few of us will have temptations quite like that. Very few of us in this church will ever be exposed to that sort of Scrooge McDuck level of quality of life. But the lure of wealth is very much a part of our lives, no matter where in society's ladder we live. Some of us, God will lead into wealth. And it will be our challenge when we are there to ensure that it does not corrupt us in a worldly way. Don't sit there and pretend like you haven't thought what it would be like to have oodles of cash. The typical hypothetical is, what would you do if you had $22 million and won the lottery? Not for us, of course, we're Christians, we're not lured in by that whole gambling lottery nonsense, but I'm sure most of us have imagined what it might be like if we had $22 million that came to us by a completely legitimate and sanctified channel. You'd build that house or retire early. Fill a swimming pool with instant noodles, any of these very normal, very normal everyday thoughts. It's the need for bigger things, more things, nicer things, better things. And that kind of craving for wealth, I actually think we're pretty good at dealing with. But that's not the only barb that the love of money has. Have you ever asked a rich person why they strove so hard to be rich? It's rarely about noodles. A conversation usually goes this way. Why did you work so hard to become this wealthy? Well, I wanted to give my children a better upbringing and education. Then what will they do with that? Well, I hope that they will study hard and get a good paying job. Why would they need a good paying job? Well, I want them to be able to give their children a good upbringing and education. This is like a dog chasing its own tail. Or even worse, this is the tail wagging the dog. Jesus Christ is supposed to be the center of our lives. The thing around everything else revolving. Everything, study, career, children, is to revolve around our devotion and service to him. The message has always been the same. Don't put your financial needs and desires above your service to God. But being godly about our money has quite frankly never been quite as much work as it has today. We have to think about it more because quite frankly we have more. What is the purpose of our wealth? What do we do with that? And thinking too hard about it can drive you insane. But you do need to think about it from time to time to check your actions. Everyone agrees, for example, that if you are incredibly wealthy, sleeping on a big pile of money while your neighbor starves to death is an immoral, sinful act. The fact remains, however, that nearly everyone in this room could, in the next 10 minutes, take out the palm-sized computer from their pocket, log on to compassion.org or any charity site of their, of their choosing, and buy rice and clean water for someone in India who otherwise would not have those things. Almost at a trivial cost to ourselves. And if we did that, we'd feel less guilty when we see those pictures of very compelling poor people, but we'd be no closer to God because of doing that. That act of charity is not what brings people to God. 
because our good actions do not reconcile us to God. Bill Gates has $80 billion and tries to give away half of that. He's given away $40 billion so far. If we pretend for a moment, if we're in a world where there's no corruption and mismanagement of charity money from time to time, imagine the good that that money has done. The houses built, the blindness cured, the millions who sleep under mosquito nets instead of dying from malaria. But he could give away every cent he ever made and not be closer to God for it. Poverty and misery in the world are a symptom, and sin is the disease. Jesus Christ is the only one who can cure that sin, and our lives have to revolve around him. But without God, it hardly matters whether you are curing cancer with your money or building giant golden statues of yourself. The rich will die and the poor will die eventually, and we will all have to stand to account before God. Wealth is a blessing from God, and he expects us to use it for him. That may be buying rice for orphans or just giving your children a better upbringing than you were afforded. But the love of money and any use of it must be subordinate to our love for God. And similarly, when the kings of the world are committing adultery with Babylon, this is not a warning about sexual sin. This is a matter of fidelity to God over other rulers which is a matter of idolatry, having no gods before him. John must certainly have imagined how so many Jews and professed Christians had suffered under Roman rule. And then when commanded to worship Caesar as a god, many bowed down and did so. Surely they did not mean it in their hearts. They knew that Caesar was not really a god. But this rings as hollow as a man who tells his wife, yes, I had an affair. But in my heart, I didn't love her like I love you. Our devotion to God is personal but not private. God chooses to work through his people and often does this by contrast. He sets his people next to the world. He puts Zion next to Babylon. The point is so that we do look different to the world around us. So that our differences can be sharp and clear. Babylon's First sin is this gross misuse of wealth. The second is a grotesque misuse of loyalty. The language of a people or city sleeping around, playing the whore, is all through the Old Testament. And it always means giving loyalty away that belongs to God, diluting God's leadership in our life, taking other gods. Now, like the issue of greed, we don't have quite the same challenge as the ancient peoples did. Neither Malcolm Turnbull nor Bill Shorten is likely to require you to call them God, let alone burn incense or sacrifices to them. But you may be asked to make something else your top priority in life, where God should be. Karl Marx, whose writings have historically inspired people to overthrow dictators and install different, more brutal dictators, is often quoted with a very famous saying, Religion is the opiate of the masses. Without spending a lot of time talking about Marx, and you have no idea how hard it is for me not to go off on that tangent, he believed that mankind had a destiny to band together and tear down all these old structures that were causing human misery. He hated religion, by which he usually meant European Christianity, because he saw it as this pain-numbing drug of life, the opium of the people. 
and people don't rise up and revolt if they're not acutely aware of their pain. Basically, the people who worship God are content with their lives, and that's not useful. You can't make a mob out of content people, so he needed to chase religion away or water it down so that they can stop being so happy with their lives. God needs to be tossed out so that the state can get put first. Now we're living in the age after the world has mostly come to its senses about that kind of idea, but it's not completely gone. And praise God that we are not likely to be held at gunpoint and forced to renounce God like poor folks in China and Russia were, where they were given the choice and not simply shot on principle. But we are in an age where we are neck deep in causes, desires, and hashtag movements that claim to have such importance, such virtue, such historical momentum that they should be first in everyone's priority. That no right-thinking person would ever put something strange and superstitious like God ahead of them. So what if you think that that unborn child is made in the image of God? Those stem cells they harvest might be the cure to Alzheimer's. So what if you think that God has a prescription for men and women in the institution of marriage? Those two guys love each other and they have every right to get married in your church. So what if, etc., etc. I'll close the barn before all the hobby horses bolt, but you get the idea. We are given a new identity as children of God. And everything else must come second to that first loyalty. Everything else, race, class, gender, sexuality, we must subordinate to God's will because we are loyal to him first above everything else about us. If we put first our loyalty to Australia, we make it an idol. If we put first our devotion to social progress, we've made it an idol. If we put first our fascination with science, we have made it an idol. The world, our Babylon, puts these things first. The people that we share this world with will put these things first in their lives because they don't know a God who is worth putting first above all things. But we have been given the word of God. We know we are living for the next world. We know that we will not transform this into a heaven on earth. The old heaven and old earth will pass away. We know that anything or anyone we put before God is destined to pass away. And then we will stand to account before God and give account of our actions to him. Friends, we live in a world that does not understand this kind of devotion. There is a tension between Zion, God's people, and Babylon. But everyone who calls themselves a child of God was once a child of the devil. Everyone who is part of the people of God was once part of Babylon. And Jesus Christ gave us the grace we needed to change that citizenship. We are able to endure in faith because Christ saves us. To put any wealth or idol before him is to trade down. We have the truth. We have instruction on how to live a good life, why to live that good life, and what to expect as a result. We may not know precisely which kings John's vision refers to, or whether Babylon is a true city or the whole worldly condition in which we live. But our response either way is to pursue knowledge of the God who saved us, to love him and his commands with all our hearts, and to wait on the day that he calls us home. Let's pray.
Father God, we are your children and we know we do not belong to this world. As long as you choose to keep us here, we ask that you empower us with your spirit to stand up to the temptations of this world. Help us to stand firm in our devotion first to you so that a greed and a craving for prosperity does not become our legacy. Help us to remain faithful and to have the strength to resist submitting to whatever need or crisis or new God the world puts in front of us. And until the day that you take us, we remain devoted to you. To your Son, go the blessing, the honor, the power, and the glory. Amen.